Amen. Well, good morning. If you and I don't know one another, my name is Matthew Perez. I'm one of the staff elders here at Life Church, and it's always a joy to bring the Word of God to you. I'm going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, this morning. And whether you have a Bible or a phone or a tablet, we want to encourage you to follow along in whatever form you have. I'm in the ESV. Uh, if you don't have a Bible or a phone or a tablet, we encourage you to follow along with your neighbor as we spend time in the Word of God this morning. We'll be in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, this morning. So as a kid, there was one Christmas show that I wanted to watch every year. And now I need to set the stage for the, those of you who were maybe born in the 90s and beyond. When I say I wanted to watch this, this was a time where you couldn't purchase it, you couldn't live stream it or YouTube it. You couldn't even pause it or rewind it if you had to use the bathroom. It was during commercials. Commercials were these breaks in shows where they advertised products so you could run and get a snack or use the bathroom and come back. They showed them more than just the Super Bowl, right? But you got one shot to watch this show. It was on one time every Christmas season. And man, if you missed it, you were waiting like 365 days to hopefully catch it the next year. And so every year, I would grab, around Thanksgiving time, my parents' TV guide. All right, again, we got to explain this to young guys. There was this little book that came in each week called TV Guide. It showed you what was on TV, the channels and the times. And in Northwest Indiana, the TV guide was in one of two places in your house, next to the remote or next to the John. But that's where you learned what was on TV. And so I would study to see when the Christmas shows were going to be on because I wanted to not miss this one. One time every year, the 1965 classic of Charlie Brown Christmas. One time every year on CBS. And if you missed it, you were out of luck. Guys, we live like savages. We were... We were animals. Now, this came out in 1965, so spoiler alert. If you haven't seen it, you're out of luck. Charlie Brown is the main character. He's in a holiday funk, and he cannot figure out why he just can't get into the Christmas spirit. It's just, it's eluding him. In fact, he feels in 1965 disenchanted with the over-commercialization of the holidays. In an effort to get into the holiday spirit, Charlie Brown is convinced by his friends to direct a children's Christmas pageant. So he takes on the task. During rehearsal, he still feels like we're just missing the Christmas spirit. And so he decides what this pageant needs is a Christmas tree. So he goes out to find a Christmas tree, and he brings home the saddest, most pathetic Christmas branch you would ever see. And it's so pathetic that his friends, this was 1965, so you were allowed to do this. His friends mocked him for it, right? They teased him about his Christmas branch. Charlie Brown now is distraught. He's standing on stage, and he simply cries out, can anybody tell me what Christmas is all about? And then my man Linus, the thumb-sucking, blanket-carrying theologian friend of Charlie Brown, walks center stage and says, lights please, and recites the birth narrative of Luke chapter two. 
Now, in 1965, there was no term like mic drop. But this was a mic drop moment because he doesn't expound on it. He doesn't add to it. He doesn't simply break it down. He recites Luke chapter 2, the birth narrative, walks off stage, looks at his friend right in the eye and says, and that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. This morning, we find ourselves in the second week of Advent. The calendar has turned to December, which means it's now acceptable to play whatever your Christmas jam music is. If you're playing it in November, man, rock it and tell the Scrooges of the world to let it go. But you can officially play your Christmas music now. It's December, which means not only is Christmas music in full swing, the busyness of December in America is in full swing. You might have year-end reports at work, office parties, kids' programs, family gathering part one, family gathering part two, family gathering part three, and for some of you, parts four, five, and unfortunately, six. It's a season where things can speed up, and like Charlie Brown, we're left wondering, what is this season really all about? This morning in our Advent series, we're looking at encounters with Jesus, and we come to John chapter 2, a passage where Jesus turns water into wine, and like Charlie Brown, we can cry out, what in the world is this passage all about, and how does this connect to this season? This morning, what we're going to see is that this encounter with Jesus is about putting the glory of God on full display, right? What I want us to see this morning is that Christ came in the flesh to put the glory of God on full display. Let's look at John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day... There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come here this morning and open your word, we do so with humility and gratitude. We are humbled that you, in all of your majesty, in all of your glory, have chosen to reveal yourself to us and have done so through your word. We come here with 
hearts of gratitude because we, like the men and women in Nigeria, like the men and women in southern Argentina, like the men and women in northern Korea, can gather together under your word translated in their language, preserved by people, sometimes to the death, so that we can have a recording of who you are and to see your display of majesty and glory in the word. We pray now that we would, with all humility, come under your word and let it shape us. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. So Christ comes in the flesh to display the glory of God. And I want us to look at two things this morning. I want us to see that the glory of Christ that is on display is for all the people. And that the glory of Christ that is on display is displayed in his cleansing of sins, right? Let's look at this first one. That the glory of Christ is on display and it's for all the people. Now, as we look at this picture in John chapter 2, this passage, I want us to consider the big picture of the gospel of John, right? At the end of the gospel of John, John tells us the sole reason that he wrote this gospel. In John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, John will tell us, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so Jesus, John tells us that he wrote this gospel with one purpose in mind, that people could record some of the things that Jesus did, some of the signs that he did, some of the miracles that he performed, so that people can come to believe that Jesus is the Christ. So when we come into the Gospel of John in any passage, including this one, we have to ask ourselves, how does this help us believe that Jesus is the Christ? And we have to ask that, because if you look at our text this morning, in John chapter 2, verse 11, we're told, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So something's going on in this passage that is causing belief in who Jesus is. Now... In the bookends of John, John chapter 20 says, this is why I wrote. In John chapter 1, he also gives us some indication as to what this book is about. In John chapter 1, verse 14, John tells us, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So John opens his book by saying, This is an account of Jesus taking on flesh so he could fully display the glory of the Lord. We look at John chapter 2, verse 11 again, and what we're told in this account is that it led to God show or Jesus showing his glory and people coming to believe in who he is. Anytime we open the Gospel of John, The two questions we have to ask ourselves is, how does this passage display the glory of the Lord, and how does this create belief? What is going on here in this turning of water into wine that Jesus is displaying glory and leading people to belief in who he is? Well, let's set the scene in verse 1. We're told on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there and Jesus is invited. On the third day, 
In John chapter 1, verse 19, we're told that John the Baptist testifies one is coming that is greater than he. In John chapter 1, verse 26, verse 29, I'm sorry, we're told the next day, John the Baptist says, hey, there's Jesus, the Lamb of God, here to take away the sins of the world. In John chapter 1, verse 35, we're told the next day, Jesus calls Peter, John, and Andrew. In John 1, 43, we're told the next day, it's the passage we saw last week, that Jesus calls Philip and Nathaniel. And so we come to chapter 2, verse 1, we're sold uh, three days later on the third day. So it's been a week since John chapter 1, verse 19, and it's been quite a week. And Jesus and his followers have now showed up at a wedding, and it appears that Mary has some kind of role, his mother has some kind of role in this wedding. We don't know if she's related to the bride or the groom, or she's friends with the bride or the groom. We're not told, we're not going to speculate, but we do know she has some concern that these people matter to her at some level, and there is a problem as the festivities unfold. Weddings in this time period could last up to a week. And it was a time of celebration, and it was a time where it was expected that the groom and his family would foot the bill. They would bear the financial responsibility of this celebration. To run out of supplies is a big deal. Right? You can't run to the gas station to get more ice. You can't run to the food line to pick up a few more pies. When you're out, you're out. And not only do you have the humiliation of running out of surprise, it's actually insulting to your guests. And so those who are throwing this celebration are being forced to look at a time where great shame may be thrust upon them in the community. The wedding is out of wine. And Mary approaches Jesus with this concern in verse 3. They have no wine. Very straightforward. Now, what Mary expects Jesus to do at this point is really unclear. Because we're told in verse 11 that he's going to turn this water into wine, and this is his first sign. This is his first miracle. So Mary hasn't seen Jesus do anything that leads her to believe he's going to miraculously provide something. But she's gone to him with her concerns and believes that he's going to be able to do something at some level. And she believes this because in verse 5, she turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. So she looks at Jesus and says, they have no wine she will say, do what he tells you. But in between, Jesus replies to his mother, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It's an odd response. There's three phrases in this response, and I'm going to look at each one. Woman, what does this have to do with me? And my hour has not yet come. When he says woman, it seems rude and almost harsh. But this was an appropriate cultural term at the time. And being from the north, it's with great humility, I have to say, your southern word gets this really right. It's like saying ma'am. 
Jesus looks at his mom and uses a term that translates almost like ma'am. John will record Jesus using this word again in John chapter 19, verse 26, when Jesus is on the cross. He looks at John and he looks at his mother and says, woman, this is your son. He's going to take care of you, ma'am. He's going to take care of you now. It's not a rude term. It's an odd term, especially for his mom. He's abrupt. As odd as that phrase is, I think it's the next phrase that becomes even stranger. What does this have to do with me? He could have said, hey, mom, relax. I'll take care of it. Mom, don't worry about it. We've got it. But he doesn't. He replies with basically, ma'am, this is not your business. Or, ma'am, you have no business calling me out to fix this. My hour has not yet come. Now, we'll get to this third phrase in a bit, but let's just think of these first two phrases. Ma'am, this has nothing to do with me, and you have no business calling me out on this. The wedding is out of wine. Mary approaches Jesus, expecting to do something, and Jesus makes very clear that the physical relationship he has with his mother is not what's going to direct him in how he acts on earth. That's what he's doing here. He has come, John chapter 1, verse 14, to display the glory and to do the will of his Father, his heavenly Father. So when it comes to what he does and how he acts, that's what's going to drive him. It's not my hour yet. This has nothing to do with me. Don't press me to fix this because you don't dictate what I do and when I do it. I think John Piper say, lays this out well when he says, this is a moment where Jesus is telling Mary and us there really is no inside track to Jesus. Mary, as his birth mother, does not have special advantage or special place with him due to his birth. Everyone, his mother included, comes to Jesus on equal footing. And what we see as the gospel unfolds is that equal footing is we are all sinners in need of grace. I cannot presume on my relationship or my family relationship, I should say. I cannot presume on my family relationship with God for my relationship with God. I must come like everyone to the cross in need of Christ to be reconciled to God. In John chapter 1, verse 12, we're told those who receive Jesus, who believe in his name, have the right to become children of God. And there is no inside track, right? There's no, I'm in because my dad is a Christian. I'm in because my mom is this devout, sweet woman of God. I'm not in God's kingdom because my aunt is this godly woman or my grandmother was this saint of a woman who prayed day and night. I'm not in God's kingdom based on anything anyone in my family has done. I'm only in God's family as a child of God through Christ. Now here's where this passage gets really beautiful though. 
It also means I cannot be excluded from the family of God because of my family. The skeletons in my family's closet don't discount me from the kingdom. The painful reality of who my father may have been or who's my sister or my grandmother doesn't discount me from the family of God. I don't have to be stressing being excluded from some upper crust club because I don't have the right family pedigree. I was born on the wrong side of the tracks. I have the wrong skin tone. I have the wrong dialect. I have the wrong zip code. That doesn't exclude from the family of God. Christ doesn't welcome me based on my family pedigree, and he doesn't exclude me based on my family pedigree. I come to the Father, and I'm accepted through Jesus Christ. It's the beauty of this season. It's the beauty of the birth narrative in Luke chapter 2 that we celebrate during this Advent season. Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The Gospel of Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. In this passage in John 2, we're told in verse 11 that Jesus is displaying his glory. Christ came in the flesh to display the glory of God, and it's on display by showing us in this moment that his glory is for all the people. There's no inside track. There's no excluding. And that glory that's on display for all the people is one where he has come to cleanse souls. As I said, there are three parts in his response to his mother. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So, ma'am, stop pressing me to fix this. This isn't my business. This isn't your business. My hour has not yet come. What is he referring to when he says, my hour has not yet come? The term hour is used several times in the Gospel of John. It's used here. In a few weeks in our Advent series in Encounters with Christ, we're going to look at Jesus with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And in that time, he will look at her and say, an hour is coming where worship will not be about location, but will be about worshiping in spirit and truth. In John chapter 7, Jesus will go to the Feast of Booths, and based on the teaching, some are going to wonder if he is the Christ, so people are sent to arrest him. And John chapter 7 verse 30 tells us that no one laid a hand on him. He is not arrested because his hour had not yet come. In John chapter 8, Jesus again is teaching, and he's asked who his father is, and he replies, if you know him, you know the Father, as in God the Father. And this is looked at as blasphemous from those who are hearing. And in John chapter 8, verse 20, we're told no one arrested him for this comment because his hour had not yet come. In John chapter 12, after Jesus' triumphal entry, what we would celebrate on Palm Sunday, right? Before Resurrection Sunday, Jesus is in Jerusalem and some Greek 
background individuals want to meet with him. And in verse 23 of John chapter 12, Jesus says, his hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he'll speak about his death that's about to come up. And in verse 27, he'll say, for this purpose, I have come to this hour. In John chapter 13, verse 1, at the Last Supper, Jesus will wash his disciples' feet because the hour had come. In John chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus is praying to the Father, and those who are sent to arrest him are in route to come pick him up and take him to his trial and take him to his death. And as he is praying and his captors are on their way, Jesus prays to the Father and he says, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, right? The gospel of John is about glorifying the Father, glorifying the Godhead, right? And he says, the hour's here. So here is really the reply of Jesus in John chapter 2. Ma'am, don't concern me with this trivial stuff. My time that I have been put on this earth to glorify the Father is not here yet. I have one purpose and one purpose only, to glorify the Father. And then after letting him know this, he turns water into wine. It seems odd for a sign. It seems odd for a first sign. But again, we're told in John chapter 2, verse 11, that this event leads people to believe in him because it manifests his glory. Why? In order to see the significance of this sign, we need to understand Old Testament prophecy of the messianic age, the time that the Messiah is to come. A time where God will gather his people, he will dwell with them, and his people will live in joyful obedience in a land of peace, in a land of plenty. The prophet Isaiah talks about this time that's to come. Look at Isaiah 25, 6 through 8. It should be on the screen behind me. He says, on this mountain... The Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 8. Consider the prophet Amos in chapter 9. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Amos chapter 9, verses 13, 14, and 15. This is a time that the prophets are telling us where wine is flowing freely, a time of sweet wine in abundance, where God's people are in God's land with him in prosperity, in plenty, in peace, in obedience for all of eternity. This is a time where they are looking forward to, and we are looking forward to. 
And so Jesus performs a sign in which he says, that age is here. My hour has not yet come to glorify the Father at the cross, but this age, it's here. And so Jesus orders the jars of purification, verse 6, right? There are six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Jesus says, go grab those and turn them and, and, and fill them up. And Jesus orders the jars of purification to be filled with water, and the water turns into an abundance of wine dripping, sweet wine overflowing, just like Isaiah had promised, just like Amos had promised. Jesus puts God's people on notice. He grabs the jars of purification, the jars that they use for their purification rituals, as if that ritual will somehow make them right with the Father. He grabs those jars and says, listen, this isn't what purifies you. Rituals and performance doesn't purify you. What purifies you is me. I'm here. Friends, there's no ritual that's going to cleanse you. There's no ritual that make you in right standing with the Father, purified and cleansed from your sins. The only thing that puts you in right standing, purified and cleansed from your sins, is the finished work of Jesus Christ, the hour for which he came. Again, we pause and consider the season of Advent, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. Now, the Advent season can be filled with a lot of striving, a lot of hard work to get things done, to get to the next place. Striving hard to get things wrapped up at work so you can enjoy the holiday time with your family. Striving hard to find those last second gifts or that perfect gift. Striving hard to have that house clean for all the guests that are coming by. Striving hard to bake cookies that look like something Martha Stewart would make or something that is TikTok worthy, whatever your jam is. Striving hard to get that house decorated so it looks like something out of Our State magazine or something that rivals Clark Griswold, again, whatever your jam is. But man, we work hard during this season to create this perfect Christmas, to find these perfect gifts, to pull off a holiday like mom or grandma used to do. But if we're honest, the striving isn't just in the Advent season. We are people that strive 24-7 365, striving to be accepted by God, thinking our efforts with our serving will somehow make us right with him, striving hard in our souls to somehow think that if I am in the right attendance, in the right place, I'm giving the right amount, that will somehow make me right with God. Those are things that should flow out of us, but they don't make us right with God. We can strive in our souls 24-7, 365 to try to see if our good deeds somehow outweigh our bad deeds so that somehow God will find favor with us. We strive hard to make sure I'm doing things that will make God accept me. We can be guilty of that year-round. 
In this passage, Jesus shows us the reality that our acceptance, our being made pure or righteous is not based on any ritual or anything that we can do. He looks, looks at the jars of the purification ritual and says, this is not what's going to cleanse you. You can look at whatever you're filling the blank in to try to make you right with God and brother or sister. Let me tell you, that is not what's going to cleanse you. He has come for the hour to cleanse your soul at the cross. Even religious performance we see here in John 2 falls short of cleansing. Our cleansing, our purification in the eyes of God only comes from resting in and placing our faith in Jesus Christ. What do I mean by faith? I don't mean just belief. Faith is belief plus action, right? Faith is when I take what I say to be true in my mind and my affections and my will line up. What I say with my mouth and what I say I believe in my head impacts my heart and it impacts my hands. I reorient my life around what I say I believe. And these guys have done that, right? In verse 12, the wedding's over. They've seen the sign. He's manifested his glory. They believed in him and now they're reorienting their life around him. Why? Because Jesus is leaving and they're going with. Where he goes, they're going. So when I say cleansing happens, when I place my faith in Christ, I'm talking not about just a verbal confession. I'm talking about a surrendering of my affections, a surrendering of my will to allow Christ to shape them for his glory. Where he goes, I'm going. The hour is here, John tells us, where the old is gone, thinking I could be made pure by religious performance. And the new is here. Purification of our souls is made possible because the Messiah is here. We celebrate that during the Advent season. In verse 11, John summarizes this passage. We said, I've said it several times this morning. This moment did two things that the Gospel of John tells us to look for. It displayed the glory of Christ. The messianic time is here. And it led to belief in his disciples. And now they're reorienting their life around these truths. As we enter this Advent season, we pause and we rejoice. Why? Because Charlie Brown cried out, can anyone tell me what Christmas is all about? And we're not left to wonder. We don't have to search in vain. We don't have to guess. John chapter 2 shows us that Christ has come for all the people. I am not excluded. We have a Christ, a Savior who comes to save us from our sins. I am freely forgiven. And there's no greater gift to get in this season or any other one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can pause and celebrate looking at truths of a miracle you perform that can oftentimes leave us scratching our heads, wondering why this is here, how does this impact me? And yet, Lord, in this simple moment, you show those who are there, you show us who are reading the glory of who you are. Lord, the beauty of this passage is that you can transform things without even touching them. Without even physically touching them, you can physically transform. 
water into wine. Without even physically touching us, you can transform hearts from sinner to child of God. We praise you and thank you that in this Advent season, we could pause in this space and celebrate that reality. Pray this in your son's name. Amen.